Welcome to the Bless the City Church podcast. This morning, we have a guest, Pastor Don Ross, who will be teaching from the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke on the prodigal sons. I love church planters. I just do. I love new churches. You can take that one. And uh, I, I just love the dedication that it takes to get something off the ground. You know, when a rocket ship takes off, it expends 90% of its fuel just getting out of the atmosphere. So the momentum that it takes to launch a new church is, is significant just from a sociological point of view, just gathering people together. Add to that the spiritual resistance from the kingdom of darkness and add to that a season of COVID. Okay? So um, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but can I just ask those of you who are open to this, those of you that have your pastor's cell number and his wife, would you text them a prayer one day a week? Choose a day. Be the Wednesday prayer person. Be the Thursday prayer person and just send them. I just got a text just now sitting here from a guy named Steve that sends me a prayer every Sunday because he knows I'm somewhere preaching. It'll happen again on Wednesday when another Steve sends it. It happens on Monday when Russ sends it. I didn't ask these guys to do it. They just send them to me. And I got to tell you, I do the same thing with some church planters that I have in my um, circle. And so many times I said, this is exactly what I needed to hear. You don't know what your pastor and his wife are going through. You don't know. You just know that God has called them and they said yes. So stand with them and be that. So, hey, Brenda and I are grateful to be with you today. This is my wife, Brenda. Give them a little wave, honey, so they know that I actually do have a wife. All right. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about what we do. We represent the Northwest Ministry Network, and they call me the network leader. Sometimes I get called superintendent. Sometimes I get called network leader. Either way, I just go by Don. That's my name. And my job, after serving at a local church, uh, we served in Whatcom County for 12 years and then left here to serve a church in Seattle for 20 years and then left that church to take this role. Um, it's, it's, there's a, kind of an apostolic flavor to this role. Uh, I oversee almost 400 churches between the Pacific Ocean and Montana border and Oregon to Canada. So that rectangle is kind of my world. And there's about 1,400 ministers. So um, some people call us a denomination, the Assemblies of God. We're not really a denomination. We're a group of churches that believe the same. And we, are called, we call ourselves a network because we're better together than we are alone. And so we just support one another, love one another, encourage one another. Uh, we got to be a part of supporting this church in its launch uh, way before a, 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 a single service happened. So with prayer support, ongoing coaching, so that's really what we do. We're excited to be that. Um, before I pray, let me say a couple of things. If you're here today and you have been sensing a call of God on your life to do something, and you don't know what it is. Pastor, missionary, something else. We don't really know what it is. Okay, I'm going to hang around up front. And I want to pray with you. I promise I'm not going to sign you up for seminary. Okay, I'm not going to send you. All I'm going to do is help you discover what your next steps would be. Following God in ministry is a lot like moving into a funnel. It starts out really broad. It could go anywhere. But as you purpose to be obedient and go forward, God really narrows until you find out exactly where he wants you to be. So that's our prayer. All of you were given a card when you came in, and it says, my mission on one side. Would you take that out and get a pen and paper? And let me tell you what I'm going to ask you to do with it, full disclosure. And again, this is America. Nobody has to do this. I'm hoping that you will. And please listen to my instructions because this is going to play into the conclusion today. If you don't have a card or you don't have a pen or pencil, move around. Somebody will help you find one of those. 
And at the conclusion, I'm going to have you turn these cards in. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. First of all, at the bottom of my mission, I want you to print your name. Just print your name. Print it in such a way that Jeremy could read it. Okay? And then, periodically, throughout the sermon today, I'm going to stop and I'm going to ask you to write down the first names of people that you know who are far from God and living outside God's love. These are people that you see on a regular basis, okay? So don't write down the name of your cousin who lives in Waukegan, Illinois, right? Pray for them, but don't put their name on this particular list. These are people that you see on a regular basis. It could be family members, could be neighbors, could be people that you work with. I'm going to ask you to write down their first names, and at the end, we're going to pray over that list. So full disclosure, that's what we're going to do. All right, everybody clear? All right, let's pray. Jesus, teach us your word. Amen. So I want to talk to you today about the story of the prodigal sons. If anybody has heard that term before, would you just give me a little wave? You've heard about the prodigal sons, okay? Now, most of us have heard about the prodigal son, but I want you to understand that both of the boys in this story were prodigals. And what that means is, prodigal means one who goes away. So, when we look at this particular story, it has some interest in it because when Jesus told this story, it shifted culture. I don't know of another story in the Gospels that has been told more than the prodigal sons. Maybe, maybe they have, but, but a lot of people know this because it's, it's gained momentum in, in our culture and in culture around the world. You know, I, it's not unusual for me to talk to a couple and they say, yeah, so-and-so, that's our prodigal. And everybody knows what that means. And you'll see it in books, you'll see it on movies, all that, okay? So, I don't know if you knew this or not, but for centuries after Christ walked the earth, while the Roman Empire was still established, Romans believed Christians to be atheists. Romans thought Christians were atheists. And here's why. Because of the way that they believed. Now imagine a conversation between a Roman and a Christian. They're just having this common conversation. And the Roman says, So, um, what temple do you worship in? And they said, Well, we really don't worship in a temple. Well, where does your priest offer sacrifices if you don't worship in a temple? Well, our priest doesn't offer sacrifices. In fact, our priest is the sacrifice. And the Roman soldier just goes, ah, that doesn't make any sense. The two worlds don't, they just didn't compute. And so Jesus finds himself in this world where he is shifting culture because what people believed about God was so radically different then what was in the father's heart, Jesus had to find a way to connect where people were with the way the father really was. And that's what this story is about. So I want to focus in on three things today. Number one, this story gives us a new picture of God. Number two, this story gives us a new picture of sin. And number three, this story gives you a new picture of salvation. Now, full disclosure, a lot of this material that I discovered uh, can be found in a book by a guy named Timothy Keller called Prodigal God. Now, not all of it is, but I would encourage you to get that book. It, it's just a, a phenomenal read. All right, here's the story of the prodigal sons, starts in verse 11. Jesus continued, which meant he had been talking up to this point, and now he's introducing a new story to the same crowd. It's like the second point in his sermon. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, when Jesus said this, the people were shocked. They were stunned because when the younger son said to the father, give me my share of the estate, what is that called? Just tell me out loud. What's that called? It's 
called an inheritance. That's exactly right. Anybody here received an inheritance? Give a little wave if you received an inheritance. Okay, some of you have. All right. What has to happen in order for you to get an inheritance? Somebody has to die. But the boy's dad wasn't dead. This is the cultural equivalent of the younger brother looking at his dad saying in plain language, I wish you were dead. I don't want you, but I do want your stuff. Any son in Jesus' day that said that to his father would have been run out of the house. The crowd was shocked that Jesus introduces a story with this opening line. But when Jesus says the second line, they're even more shocked. The second line, so he divided his property between them. The word property is the Greek word bios. It means life. It's where we get the word biology. The father divided his life between the two boys so that he could give the younger son. Now, if you've read this story before, maybe you were like me and you thought, okay, so the younger kid got part of the estate. Well, how much did he get? In Jesus' day, if there were two boys, the older son always got twice as much as everybody else. So he would get two-thirds, the younger son would get one-third. If there were three boys or four boys, then the older son would get twice as much as everybody else. So he'd get 40%, everybody else would get 20%. So he gets twice as much because he had twice the responsibility. So how did the father do this? When I first read this story, I thought, okay, so he sells his stuff, gives the guy his third, and off he goes. It's a tough afternoon at the house, but other than that, it's over with. <laughs> That's not the way it happens. They didn't have Chase Manhattan where he went in and cashed out his savings or called Edward Jones and cashed in his mutual funds or whatever. There was none of that stuff. The wealth of this man, and he was a wealthy man, was in his land, his businesses, and we'll see that he's a business owner here in a minute, and his livestock. So he had to sell one-third of everything he possessed in order to give that to the younger son. So he'd have a conversation that goes like this. His neighbor would come over and he said, Elias, I heard you're selling a third of your sheep. What's going on? And he would have to tell the story of how his younger son rejected his love. He sold a third of his camels, third of his horses, third of his cattle, a third of his crops, a third of his land. That was the life, the bios, because every Jewish person believed that their land had been given to them by whom? By God. That's right. He's in pain. He's in deep pain. So this boy gets all the stuff and he takes off. We pick up our story in verse 13. Before I read that, would you take out your card and a pen or pencil, all right? You've already put your name at the bottom there on the My Mission side. Would you write down a couple of people's names that you know are far from God that have a little bit of rebellion in their heart? This boy had rebellion in his heart. Who do you know that has a little bit of rebellion? You can write your own name down too if that means, okay, all right. Who do you know that has a little bit of rebellion in their heart that God's prompting you to pray for right now? Okay, let's pick up the story. Verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he'd had, set out for a distant country where he squandered his wealth and wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to the citizen of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, we know that this boy is outside of the nation of Israel because you couldn't work for a pig farmer in Israel. Because pigs were detestable animals. So here he is in a far country. He spent his money on 
wild parties and prostitutes and just finds himself absolutely broke. Now he goes to a farmer and what does he do? He said, I, 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 need, I need a job. And the farmer said, okay, you're going to feed the pigs. So now he has hit the wall. I know what it feels like to hit the wall. Maybe you know what it feels like to hit the wall where your life absolutely comes apart. In fact, maybe some of you are thinking about a period in your life where you hit the wall. Maybe you went through a divorce. Maybe it wasn't your idea. Maybe you've been through a really hard breakup and it feels like your heart is torn apart. Maybe you got fired when somebody else got promoted. Maybe your house went through a fire. Maybe you had a child die of cancer. I don't know what it was, but you know what it's like when people hit the wall. Would you take out your card again? Who do you know that you have a relationship with and their life has hit the wall? Just like this young man thought it all put together, had it all going his way, and then boom, the bottom crashes out. I want you to write down two or three names, first names only, just people that you know. The only person that's going to use this card is you. Who's God asking you to pray for whose life has hit the wall? All right, let's pick up the story. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he's feeding the pigs now. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, there are three things here in these few verses that are absolutely fascinating when you look at them through the cultural lens. Here's the first one. When he came to his senses. Have you ever had that happen? Or you come to your senses, you go, what am I doing? This is crazy. I want to suggest something to you. Sin makes us insane. You can't come to your senses without first leaving your senses. And this boy's rebellion against God, against his father, against all wisdom, has brought him to this crash. I want to suggest to you that sin makes us insane. Here's the second thing. This is the first mention of God in the story. Now, he doesn't actually mention God, but he's putting together this plan. He's got this restoration plan. He says, my father's wealthy. He's a landowner. He's got resources. Here I am starving. Maybe he'll take mercy on me. I know what I'm going to do. And he rehearses the speech, his restoration speech about what he's going to say to his dad. And he rehearses these words. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. This is the first time that this boy has opened his heart to God. Now, he's not there yet, but he's moving in the right direction. I love the story of the priest who came to Jesus in Mark chapter 11. And he asks him this question. And Jesus answers this priest and he says, You are not far from the kingdom of heaven. You're not there yet but you're not where you were. That's what this church is all about. All of us are not where we're headed, but we're not where we were. Take out your card one more time. Would you do that? Who do you know that's in process? They haven't committed their life to Christ yet, but God has put you in relationship with them and you know that they're moving in the right direction and you want to pray for them. I want you just to write down a couple of names of people that you know are in that category. Here's the last thing out of these verses right here that stands out. It's interesting. He said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now for years, I read that like a slave. Because being a slave means you at least have food. You can't work if they don't feed you. That's just like an animal. We've got to feed the animals. We've got to take care of them. Got to feed the slaves. Got to take care of them. It would be better to be a slave and be alive than to die feeding pigs. And this guy's so hungry, he wants to eat what he's feeding pigs. Think about that. Anybody here ever fed pigs? Yeah. We have a special name for pig food. What is it? Yeah, you knew it. 
You knew it. Some of you are thinking about how awful that smells right now, okay? You're only an hour from lunch. Try and hold on to it. This man says, make me like one of your hired servants. Now, in the Greek language, hired servant is not the same as slave. Slave is doulos. Hired servant is, is a different word altogether. It means apprentice. Here's what the boy is saying. Father, give me a job in one of your businesses. You own a... A, a, a pottery shop, you own a leather shop, you own a woodworking shop. Give me a job in one of your shops and from the wages that I make, I will begin to pay you back. Now here's why he did that. Because the rabbis of the day taught and everybody knew if you, diso- if you um, uh, dishonor your parents publicly with your behavior, if you destroy valuable property, it's not enough just to say, I forgive, uh, will you forgive me? You have to produce restoration in a way that it brings restitution. You got to pay for it. So that's what this boy's doing. So he puts his plan. He says, I'm going to go back to my dad. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to ask him to make me an apprentice in one of his shops. And I'm going to be satisfied with that the rest of my life while I pay my dad off. Everybody tracking with me? Okay, let's pick up the story. Verse 20. He got up. He went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his sons, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Okay, when Jesus says this part of the story, the crowd gasped again. Here's why. The father sees him afar off. I can imagine what that was like. That means that the father was looking for the boy to come home. He's looking for the boy to come home. In this chapter, this chapter, uh, Luke 15, is a story of three lost things. Lost coin, lost sheep, lost boy. The lost coin, what happens? The woman who lost the coin works really hard until she finds it. The lost sheep, what happens? The good shepherd leaves the 99 healthy sheep who can all take care of themselves And he goes out after the one, finds that lost sheep and brings it back. But the boy, who goes out after the boy? Nobody does. Nobody does. But the father longs for the boy to come home. So he's been watching and waiting. And I can just imagine one day he's looked down the road and he sees this figure moving down the road. He said, could it be? Could it be? He walks like my my son. Could that be? And he watches intently as the figure gets closer and closer. And finally, he recognizes him. And he says, he's back, he's back, he's back. And he runs to him. And when Jesus told the crowd that this wealthy Middle Eastern patriarch ran, they gasped again. Because wealthy Middle Eastern patriarchs don't run. They walk with pomp and circumstance and ceremony in distinction. Women ran, children ran, but wealthy Middle Eastern patriarchs could not run. They'd have to pull up their tunic, exposing their legs, so when they ran, they don't trip. No, 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 you wait for them. They don't run to you. So he ran to the boy, and then what did he do? He kissed him, and he threw his arms around him. Do I need to remind you what this boy's recent employment was? What do you think he smelled like? I want you just to recognize something. People that come to Jesus come the way they come, not the way you want them to come. The people who come to Jesus are the people that God sends, not necessarily the ones that you're hoping for. There's something inside our heart where we have to be willing to throw open our arms and say, whosoever will may come. He kisses him. And then he says in verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He starts to roll out his plan, and the father stops him. Stop, he says in verse 22. But the father said to his servants, quick, put the best robe on him. Now, who had the best robe in the house? Who owned the best robe in the house? The father did. The father says, put my robe on him. There's there's a signal here of what's going to happen in Revelation with us. Put my robe on him, put a ring on his finger, and sandals on his feet. Now, slaves don't wear sandals. They were expensive. Only sons wore sandals. And then he said, put the ring on his finger. What's the ring? The ring is the family signet ring that represented that this boy belonged to the father, that he was a son of the father, wait for it, that he was an heir of the father. That now as the younger son, one third of everything the father owned now belongs to this boy. Wait a minute, he just squandered it all. I have more. Isn't that an incredible picture of mercy and grace? And then the father says these words. Bring the fatted calf, kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead, is alive again. He's lost and was found. So they begin to celebrate. Now, wouldn't it be awesome if that was the end of the story and everybody was happy? But that's only the first act. Here's the second act. Because it's the story of the prodigal sons. We pick up the story. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the other son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, said, what's going on? Your brother's come. And your father has killed the fatted calf. That's the second time we hear about the calf. Because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go into this party. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. Now this is very disrespectful in the the Greek language. It can be translated, look you, like he's condescending and speaking disrespectfully to his father. Look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf. Third mention of the calf. What's up with the calf? Father welcomes the son. Kill the calf. Older brother says, what's the music? The servant says, they killed the calf. Older brother confronts the father. You never gave me a goat. and Now you've killed the calf. Okay, so what's the deal with the calf? Do you ever ask questions when you read the Bible? You learn all kinds of stuff when you ask questions about the Bible. In Jesus' day, meat was not like our day. We build our meals around protein-based meat. Fish, pork, beef, whatever it is, okay? So now, in Jesus' day, meat was meant to be shared with the community. So it was more like a condiment. So they would have a grain-based diet with bits of protein from the meat that would be on the side of the dish that they would share with the whole community. So when Zacchaeus came to Christ in uh, chapter 19, he throws this party for the whole community. Everybody comes, and that's what's happening here. They kill the fatted calf, and they invite the whole community because the boy was lost, and now he's been found. The son, the older brother goes on and says, hey, I have been with you always. Every, and, or the father says, yes, you've been with me always, and everything that I have is yours But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, he doesn't call him my son. When the boy first comes home, he says, my son was lost and now he's been found. But when he's talking to the older brother, he says, this older brother or this brother of yours was lost. And you know what he's doing? The father is being very gentle, but he's reminding the older brother of his responsibility 
to take care of the younger brother. That's why he gets two-thirds of the estate, which he ignored. Now, here's what was going on inside the heart of the older brother. Just stick with me here for a moment. When he is angry with the father for killing the fatted calf, remember, all of the wealth was either kept in the ground, in property, or in livestock. So as soon as the younger brother is gone and he's been paid off, then the older brother thinks to himself, now everything that's left belongs to, to me. He's angry with the father because the father killed his fatted calf. Even though it's not really his. Do you understand that both of the younger brothers are angry with the father for the very same reason and they each acted out in a different way? The younger brother says, I don't want you, but I want your stuff. And then he's gone. And then the older brother says, now I don't really care about you either because I've already got all your stuff. Neither one of the sons wanted the father, but they both wanted his stuff. Everybody tracking with me so far? All right, now, it's going to make a lot of sense when I start talking to you about who Jesus is talking to. Now, remember, I told you we're going to learn three things. Here's the first one. Jesus is redefining God as Father. Jesus called God the Father. Can I just challenge you when you pray, that you pray in Jesus' name? When you pray to the Father, you pray. Because uh, there's a lot of people in the world that are going to talk about God. They are not connected to Jesus. Jesus is what connects us and who connects us to God the Father. Secondly, Jesus redefines sin in a very powerful way. Each of these sons wanted the Father's things. Neither one of them wanted the Father. Each one of them used the father to get what they really wanted, which was his wealth. One son used the father by being very good. That's the older brother. He used the father, but he only was good because he got what he wanted. The younger brother used the father by being very bad, but both of these boys were lost to the father. Now, Jesus is telling this story to two groups of people. If you have your Bible open, you could look at verses 1 and 2, and you can see that Jesus has been telling this story to two groups of people. One group are tax collectors and sinners, and the other group are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And each group is represented by one of these boys. You can tell that the younger boy is kind of represented by the tax collectors and the sinners. And the older boy represents the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Now the story gets a little bit clearer because each of these boys represent two ways that all of us and everybody in this room is going to fit in one or two categories. All of us try and relate to God either by moral conformity like the older brother, I'm going to do what's right or self-discovery. You can't tell me what to do. My life belongs to me. That's like the younger brother. Self-discovery says, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to learn my way. I'm going to go where I want. You can't tell, this is my life. It's my body. It's my money. It's my time. It's my space. It's all about me. Self, uh, moral conformity says, no, 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 no. I'm going to do what's right because that's the best way for me to get ahead. I'm going to do the right thing. And Jesus walks in between both of these groups of moral conformity and self-discovery, and he says, actually, you're both wrong. You're both wrong. It's people who recognize that they need the gospel and walk in humility. Those are two ways that we try and be our own God. Now, here's what I mean by that. We try and be our own God when we control circumstances, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to control circumstances through my independence. I'm going to do it right. I'm going to obey. I'm going to be all the right because that's the best way for me to get ahead. I can control circumstances by cooperating. Are you tracking? That's how we try and become our own God. Now, the Old Testament, or excuse me, in, in Jesus' culture, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were kind of like the good church people of the day. 
they all tried to do it right. We're going we're gonna to do what God wants us to do. And here's a lesson. Good church people can learn to avoid Jesus by being highly committed to the church. Here's the way I want to say it. You can't be committed to Jesus without being committed to the church. But you can be committed to the church without being committed to Jesus. I want you to think about that. Because that's how we try and control God. We want God to bless us. Now, rebellious people disobey God in order to get things. That's like the younger brother. You can't tell me what to do. Religious people obey God in order to get things. That's like the older brother. I'm going to do it right. I'm going to obey God. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to tithe. I'm going to be a leader of a small group. I'm going to do all the right stuff so that God will bless my life. Because if I do it right, God will smile on me. He'll bless my life and I'll be moved ahead. And we think that we are kind of controlling God. It's called a transactional faith. You know what a transaction is? I give you money, you give me a service or a good. That's what that is. This is transactional faith. And here's what we need to understand. The people of the gospel are not in either category. People, obey, people of the gospel obey God in order to get God. That's the reward. That's the pearl of great price. Now, show me somebody who is a religious person who has obeyed God in order to have a good life. Because if we ask God, if we obey God in order to get a good life, and then something goes wrong with our life, what happens to us? We get angry at God. Because God didn't come through. I did my part. I went to church. I read the Bible. I didn't sleep around. I didn't lie. I didn't steal. I did all the right stuff. So why did my wife leave me? Why did I get cancer? Why did my baby die? Why was I in a car accident? Why, why, why? We had this deal and you didn't keep your bargain. That's the way religious people live. But people of the gospel don't live that way. People of the gospel say, Father, I don't know why. I got sick. I don't know why my wife left me. I don't know why I got fired. But I am so grateful, Jesus, that I have a friend like you who will walk through this season with me. Do you see the difference? That's what Jesus is trying to point out. I want to share a story with you that wraps up on the last other side of your card you'll notice that there are nine arts there. These are skills that you can develop that will help you share the gospel with your friends. The first one is just to notice people. So if you go to Fred Meyer and you're standing in line, there's four people in front of you, just notice them. If you're parked at a red light and people are walking in front of you, notice the people. Just get your eyes off of your own life and notice people around you. That's just the first step. Notice others. Number two, then start praying for some of those people. You may never see them again, but you can pray in that moment. It makes a difference. Then number three, if you're with them, start listening to them. And then if you have the opportunity, you can ask questions. So there are nine different skills. And I've given a lot more information to your pastor on these nine arts. But I want to tell you a story. So... I wrote a book a, a, a number of years ago. Um, our church in Seattle hit a high of 2,000 and then dropped down to 150 and then came up the other side, okay? Called it a turnaround church. It was painful and wonderful, but not at the same time. <laughs> so I wrote this book called Turnaround Pastor and how God worked on my heart before he worked on the church. And I'm writing this book and... Uh, it, it, McDonald's was open 24-7 in those days and had decent internet and, you know, decent coffee and I could go there. So I wake up way early, like, you know, real early and I'm there working and there's this guy that sits across from me and we notice each other a few days. You know how it's like because you get this routine going and finally he looks at me and he says, my name's Carl. And I said, oh, my name's Don. And that's the end of the conversation. A couple days later, you know. Carl's going back and forth. He goes, you're here all the time. I see you working. I go, yeah, I'm working on a project. He goes, oh, yeah. 
I said, I see you up early. He goes, yeah. I said, are you married? No, no. I, I used to be married. In fact, I've had 11 women in my life, married to three of them, and, you know, my life just came apart. And I've been into drugs and alcohol. All of a sudden, it all starts coming out, and he just, he, he just stops. And he said, I don't know why I'm blankety-blank treating you like a blankety-blank priest and telling you all my blankety-blank story. And he filled in all the blanks, you know. He said, for some reason, I just feel like I can, I can talk to you. And I went, okay, okay. Next day, he comes by. He doesn't say much. Then he starts to warm up a little bit more. And he's talking about a friend. He goes, yeah, I had to make amends. Well, if you're in recovery, both Brenda and I have deep experience in recovery, 12 steps and such. And, and uh, I recognize the word amends. And I said, huh, amends. At that time, we had a very large recovery ministry at our church in Seattle. In fact, 25% of our congregation were in recovery. Here's what I know about people in recovery. They tell you the truth and they really don't care what you think about it. <laughs> and it was just flat out, straight out. And I, I like that. I said, Carl, you use the word amends. Are you a 12-stepper? He goes, yeah. Are you a stepper? And I said, yeah. He said, huh, 28 years sober. And I said, 23 for me. I didn't tell him that alcohol was not the issue for me. Because in addiction, there are three different kinds of addiction. A chemical addiction, a behavioral addiction, and relational addictions. And they can all be destructive. Okay? Jesus heals us all, but we got to recognize our pain. And, and, and often they go together. So I didn't tell him my whole story at that point. I went, oh, yeah. And he goes, ah. And, and now there's this kinship between the two of us. Now, in McDonald's, we had this rule. You couldn't sit with anybody else. You had to sit at your own table. Well, Carl breaks the rules. He comes over and he sits with me. And he says, what is it about you? And I go, ah, well, you know, I don't know. And he says, I just feel like I can talk to you, you know. And this goes on back and forth. And he shares more of his story, funny stories. He got this girl pregnant back in Virginia, named the son that was born Chip, because he liked the word Chip, Chipper. Takes off, leaves her, divorces her, gets a job in Boeing in Kansas, then comes out to Seattle, marries another girl, figures he'll never see the first one again, has another son. What does he name him? I kid you not. He has two sons. I met them both, named Chip and Chipper. We're still in group together. That's kind of the fast forward on the story here, okay? True story. I mean, he's got all the, hey, you never know when you meet people, when Jesus starts bringing people into your life, they've got all kinds of twists and turns. And some of you do too. And it's okay. None of them surprise Jesus. One day he walks in and he's got this program and he goes, I know who you are. I know who you are. You're a preacher. You did Smokey Don's funeral. And he took up this picture of this guy named Don that was nicknamed by his group, Smokey Don, and he died. His daughter went to our church, and I said, yeah, I'd be happy to do your, your father's funeral. Well, Carl came to that funeral. It's the first time he saw it. I didn't even know he was there. He says, I know who you are. You're a preacher. And I went, yeah? He goes, I guess that's okay. <laughs> he sat down on the other side. He said, I don't know what it is you got, but I want what you got. And I said, okay. We had this little booklet by Rick Warren called Finding Your Purpose in Life. 30 pages. I said, Carl, just read a couple of pages every day and underline stuff that you have questions about. It was the beginning of a discipleship relationship. So he came back and that went on for about a month. So now we've been friends for less than six months. And at the end of that time, he looked at me and he said, I, I, I want this. And there's this little prayer at the end. I said, are you ready to pray this prayer? He goes, I don't know how to pray. I said, well, you pray by talking to Jesus the same way you talk to me. Is this being recorded? Okay, I got to be careful then. Because okay. <laughs> um, it could go anywhere, you know. Uh, but you'll, you'll get the picture. He says, I don't know how to pray. I said, yeah, you do. You just talk to Jesus the same way you talk to me. He said, really? The same way? I said, absolutely. So I pray. I said, Jesus, I'm here at McDonald's early with my friend Carl. He wants to give you his life. He wants to follow you. And I want you just to hear his heart and forgive his sin. I said, okay, Carl, you're on. He goes, uh, hello, Jesus? Like he's on the phone. Okay. <laughs> hello, Jesus? Uh, this is Carl. I'm with Don. I'm his friend. 
And he said that I don't have to BS you, only he didn't say BS, okay? He's praying, and he says, I don't have to BS you in my prayers. And you know what my life is? And he confesses it, and it's just this amazing transformation that took place, okay? Well, later on that week, he came to me, and he said, Paul's, my friend Paul's in, in the hospital, and he's dying. He said, would you go see him? And I said, well, I could. Do you think that's the right thing? He goes, no, I'm supposed to go. I said, okay. Are you nervous? He goes, yeah. I said, okay, I can help you with that. So I prayed to him, coached him on a couple of things, you know, and he goes in. He stood at the foot of his friend Paul's bed, told him his whole story, and then laid out what's called Pascal's Wager. Anybody ever heard of Pascal's Wager? Basically, Blaise Pascal lived in the 1600s, a theologian and a physicist at that time, and he says, everybody bets with their life. And it's better for you to bet that there is a God and live like there's a God and find out that there isn't a God than there is for you to live like there isn't a God and then find out that there is. Everybody lives their life as a bet, as a wager. It's called Pascal's Wager. Without knowing anything about Pascal's Wager, this guy never made it past the eighth grade. He lays the whole thing out in front of Paul. And Paul says, that makes sense. And he led him to Christ. He's only been a Christian himself a week. Two weeks later, Dixie has a heart attack. He sneaks in booze into the hospital. I kid you not, it's part of the story for Dixie and then leads her to Christ at the same time, okay? You can tell he's not fully discipled, okay? He's just, but he's, he's doing, all right. And he leads a third person to Christ and they die. All three of them die that first month. He came to me after a month and he said, Don, can we ask Jesus for a different ministry? Everybody I talk to dies, Okay. <laughs> I said, absolutely. So Carl and I talked yesterday on the phone. To this day, Carl now has Chip coming to our group. I meet with them every Saturday that I'm not traveling or fishing. They are there. It's just this amazing thing. And here's what I want to ask you this morning. You have a list of names on your card, okay? Each one of us can pray for those people We can serve those people. You've all got Carls in your life. You've got Carls that don't know how to find their way back. You've got Carls that are feeding pigs, telling themselves there's got to be a better way, but I just don't know how. Do you realize it's no accident that you live where you live, that you work where you work, that you have friends that you have friends with, that you're in clubs that you're in clubs? Jesus puts you there as his representative. So here's what I want to do. In just a few moments, those of you who are willing, because Jesus will take you at your word, believe me, I'm going to ask you to stand up and come forward in just a minute. I want you to take your card. I want you to drop it right here on the stage in front of me, and I want to pray over you. And I'm going to commission you to be a local missionary. Now, your pastor is going to collect all those cards. He's going to send them back to you in the mail and let you know how many names are represented there. Because that is your potential congregation. That's your potential church. Jesus always has the gospel move through relationships. Always. So, with every head up and every eye open, and everybody looking all around with no musical fanfare at all. I want to pray over you. If you're willing to be commissioned as a local missionary to love the people that you've written down, to serve them, and to have opportunity to share the gospel, the Holy Spirit will help you. I want to pray over you right now. Would you come forward? Just stand up where you're at. You won't be the only one. I want you just to stand up and walk up and just drop that and just stand right here in front of me, okay? I want to give you time to do that. Every one of you is going to know six to eight people, maybe even ten. Just, yeah, just drop them right on the stage and just stay right here. Can I have the rest of you stand and we're just going to pray together? All right. Just make room. If people are coming in behind you, we've got plenty of spy space all the way around. Here's what I've noticed. I've been doing this for about five or six years with many of our churches. And from the very first Sunday that they put their name down, people that they had never seen, or or that they hadn't seen rather in months, sometimes even years, they run into them that week. 
or they get a card from them, or they get an email or some text message. Somehow there's this connection that takes place. And within about, within about six months of a Sunday like this, some of these people are going to start showing up right inside here. You're going to have contact with them because the gospel works through relationships. You're going to find yourself in McDonald's sitting next to a Carl. Maybe her name will be Carol. I don't know. But here's what I know. Every one of you that came up and dropped a card have a willing heart to be served and to be used by Jesus. So here's what I want you to do. With your eyes open, just open your hands, okay? You're going to kind of receive this commission. Anybody here serve in the military? Up front here? Yeah. Where'd you serve? What, what branch? Army. In the Army. Thank you for serving. Somebody else, where'd you serve? Air Force. Air Force. Good. Thank you for serving. Anybody else? Do you remember when you took the oath? You raised your right hand, remember? I will defend against all enemies, foreign and domestic. In that moment, you willingly said, I will give up my life. I'll give up my life for my country. Well, that's what you've done right now. When we come to Jesus, we have given up our life to Jesus and he gets to spend it anyway. Right here, he's going to spend it with these friends. So Father, we lift our hands to you. I pray over every man, over every woman that is standing in front of me right now. And I commission them as local missionaries, and their mission field are the names written on their card. Father, I pray as Pastor Jeremy prays over these cards and then returns the cards to them in the mail, that there will come a connection between them and these people that you have called them to serve. They already love them. Their heart is already inclined in them. Father, I pray that they will pray over this list on a daily basis and that the walls of darkness will come down and that the power of the gospel will flow through natural relationships as you have established that. We commit ourselves to you in full obedience. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. This sermon was preached on September 25th, 2022. For more content, you can find us on Facebook or at blessthecitychurch.com. Thanks for listening.